Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is Episode 9, Revolution is an Abrupt Change. In my last episode, I discussed that France was at war with Europe. There was a new National Assembly. The king had been arrested. He was tried and executed. In China, war preparations continued over border issues with the Soviet Union. And China declared martial law and conducted more political purges. In this episode, I want to talk about the fallout from the king's execution. The war with Europe grinds on. More European nations get involved in the mess created by France. The Committee of Public Safety springs into existence and another French constitution is promulgated. In China, Mao launches yet another campaign, this one called the One Strike and Three Antis campaign. Lin Biao's sun rises and then sets, becoming Chairman Mao's newest enemy. Also, China reaches out to the United States. I want to begin the episode with a quote from Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce an American author and writer in the middle of the 19th century. Quote, Revolution is an abrupt change in the form of misgovernment. End of quote. The execution of King Louis XVI marked another turning point in the French Revolution. Certainly, killing a nation's leader was a bold statement and obviously irreversible. Immediately following the king's execution, the National Assembly struggled with internal divisions again. And there was also new issues. The war, or the wars on the Vendée, that I'll talk about in the next episode, was a problem. Remember, the National Assembly's vote to execute the king was not unanimous. But once the deed was done, the course was set. At that time, the Jacobins had control of the government and they were the most radical. But there was also the less radical parties, such as the Girondists. They were more moderate than the Jacobins and they wanted to end the monarchy just like the Jacobins did. But that's where they differed, was beyond that. What to do about the revolution at that point? There was a split. The Girondists wanted to reset the revolution back to its original causes. The Jacobins, however, wanted to push further than had been the original causes of the revolution. They wanted to create a new society free from the past. 
The Jacobin-controlled National Assembly established a new calendar based on a 10-day period, negating the importance of Sunday. The Assembly also created new names for the months based on natural phenomenon. The most familiar leader amongst the Jacobins that I've mentioned him before was Maximilian Robespierre. He coined the famous slogan from that period, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and it became the nation's new motto. He was so dedicated to the revolution, he became known as the incorruptible. His rise to power eerily parallels the rise of terror in the next phase of the revolution, known as the reign of terror, a period lasting about 10 months and famously symbolized by the guillotine. Robespierre was generally liked by the citizens. Notably, he was a passive man who earlier denounced capital punishment. But as the revolution matured and Robespierre's views changed, he eventually encouraged the violence and killings as a means to achieve the Jacobins' ideas of a virtuous society. The consensus between Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai that a minority of counter-revolutionaries were sabotaging the war preparation prompted the CCP Central Committee on January 31, 1970 to call for a strike against all counter-revolutionaries and their activities. It even had a name, the One Strike and Three Antis campaign. On February 5th, about a week later, the Central Committee followed with another edict that corruption, speculation, and waste should be eliminated. The latest campaigns would last until November of 1970. And if you were thinking that this is just another excuse to impose terror and death on the citizens, you would be right. The terms that were used and the activities that were prohibited were never clearly defined. And that was the point. The purpose was to impose fear on everyone as almost any act, currently or in the past, might be considered a crime. It is impossible to accurately state the human toll from this latest campaign. But I have read estimates ranging from 600,000 to as many as 3.5 million. As soon as Lu Shaoqi's body was cremated, the process of choosing his successor began. Lin Biao, whom I've mentioned before, was the most obvious candidate to replace Lu Shaoqi. And as I have already mentioned, Mao had been growing increasingly leery of him the contemporaneous war preparation, and martial law put the military into a prominent position. Lin Biao, of course, was in charge of the military, which is one of the reasons why Chairman Mao was uncomfortable with him. Mao did not like sharing the spotlight. The bodyguards protecting Chairman Mao were army members. Mao began to suspect they were spying for Lin Biao 
and reporting back to Lin Biao. So Mao Zedong planned a trap. Once the trap was sprung, it caught Chen Buda, the nominal leader of the Cultural Revolution Group, you'll remember him, and exposed him as a Lin Biao supporter. Mao accused Chen Buda of being a spy and a traitor. Chen Buda was finished as a leader in the CCP. Keep in mind, he was once the number four guy. But the real target of Mao's scheming was Lin Biao. By late 1970, Lin Biao's star was beginning to fall, and Chairman Mao decided to take that opportunity to change direction. The arrest, trial, and execution of King Louis XVI was one thing. But remember, France was still at war. Throughout the autumn of 1792, the French military continued to surge eastward and into enemy territory with little resistance. On November 29, 1792, the Assembly issued a decree that France would assist anyone or any nation that wished equality and liberty. On December 15th, French generals were allowed to introduce the full state of French programs to the occupied territories. All taxes, tithes, feudal dues were abolished. So was nobility and privilege. In the ultimate hypocrisy, France was engaging in conquest and terror and tyranny when just two years before it was renouncing it. There were plans to annex Belgium and establishing the eastern French boundary at the Rhine River. The problem here was that at that time, some of that territory belonged to the Dutch. And the English had a pact with the Netherlands to defend her. Let's be clear. England had no desire to intervene or interfere in the French Revolution, as long as it did not implicate the English's interests. But by invading Belgium, that got England's attention. Both the English and the Prussians had guaranteed the protection of the Netherlands, and England prepared for war. The execution of the king in France precipitated the final move by England. On February 1, 1793, the French Assembly declared war on the Dutch. France was essentially giving its middle finger to Europe. The French were determined to spread their movement everywhere. Throughout the spring of 1793, France continued to annex territory. At the same time, the English were talking with Spain. Spain was equally appalled by what was happening in France. And in March of 1793, Spain expelled the French legation France retaliated and declared war on Spain. Spain and England responded, forming an alliance and blockading the French Mediterranean coast. The English also convinced the Russians to join the campaign against the French. Within six months, following the execution of King Louis XVI, most of Europe had aligned itself against 
the French. And it did not take long for the Allies to take back what France had obtained. It happened quickly. The sudden reversal of fortune for France caused paranoia and national anxiety. The reasons for the sudden reversal and collapse of its front are not subject of my podcast and beyond my scope. But the good news for France was that throughout her European wars during the French Revolution, the Allies never seemed to get too far inside France before faltering. The Allies suffered from disunity, and they were unable to ever amount and sustain a coordinated drive deep into France. After Louis XVI's execution, the rest of Europe did not seem enthralled and lost desire to support a sickly crown prince, Louis XVI's son, in France. England was also more focused on securing Belgium for Austria and defending the Netherlands. Russia soon lost interest and seemed to get cold feet. Despite the French setbacks, she pressed on with the war effort. In August of 1793, the Assembly passed the Levée en masse, basically forced conscription of all unmarried males between the ages of 18 and 25. All other citizens were to serve the war effort in other ways, manufacture, transport, medical, and lodging. The assets of the nation were now at the disposal of the prosecution of the war. The levy swelled the military to over 1.1 million troops by September of 1794. That would make it the largest armed force ever seen in Europe at that point. What the French military lacked in training and experience, they made up for in numbers. They overwhelmed their enemies. And the French pushed back again, recapturing Toulon in December of 1793, a key role being played by a 25-year-old junior officer of artillery, Napoleon Bonaparte. Within two months of that time, December 1793, he would become a general. Lin Biao's decreased standing gave Chairman Mao an opportunity to accomplish two things simultaneously. He wanted to further diminish Lin Biao's status and neutralize the threat from the Soviet Union. He had been working on a plan since the autumn of 1969 and the Soviet Union's Xinjiang province campaign. And the United States was the hinge. Lin Biao was staunchly anti-American and hated the Americans as much as he hated the Soviets. At the same time, the war in Vietnam was raging and Chairman Mao knew China and the U.S. had a common ground on their interests in Vietnam. The U.S. did not want Chinese troops in Vietnam and China did not want to be attacked by the United States. Lin Biao was in Mao's way of any friendly overtures to the United States. 
Likewise, President Richard Nixon distrusted Moscow more than Beijing, and he wanted China brought into the international community. With that background, ambassador negotiations between China and America began. In early 1971, the Chinese table tennis team competed in an international tournament in Japan. There, the table tennis team invited the United States table tennis team to visit China. They accepted the invitation. With the American team, diplomats followed. Soon after the ping-pong team visited China, Nixon's National Security Director, Henry Kissinger, was invited to China. He, of course, accepted. And despite the United States' long-standing treaty with Taiwan, a very touchy issue for China, Kissinger visited China anyway and offering China full diplomatic relations. Kissinger even promised China a seat at the UN. It's also been alleged Kissinger shared with China intelligence about the Soviet Union. Stupidly, Kissinger never requested anything in return from China. But the trip was kept a secret. In January 1971, President Nixon addressed the United States about his preparatory plans to visit the People's Republic of China. The news instantly had the intended effect that Chairman Mao sought. International attention shifted from Moscow to Beijing. Mao rightfully crowed that he had caused the United States to kowtow to him. Understand, those are just merely words that Chairman Mao used. I have no idea if any American actually kowtowed to Chairman Mao, but figuratively, that is what it can be seen as. As the People's Republic of China and the United States moved toward diplomatic relations, the split between Mao Zedong and his heir apparent grew wider. The English and the Spanish blockade of France's Mediterranean coast started to have a large impact in France. Most major commodities, sugar, soap, coffee, and candles, all experienced large price increases. Violent clashes broke out in all the major French cities. This was mixed with the unpopular Levée en masse, and resistance to the revolution became more ominous. Counter-revolution clashes had to be suppressed by the French government. The biggest insurrection was happening in the Vendée region. I'll get to that in the next episode. At this point in time, in early 1793, you will recall the war was not going well for France. The counter-revolution insurrections only added to the challenges facing the National Assembly. From this time came the Assembly's answer, the Committee of Public Safety. Originally, a 25-member committee and later reduced to nine members, its goal to be the executive arm of the nation. It was believed a more efficient and less cumbersome body than what it had replaced. 
Its leader at its inception was Jorge or Georges Danton. And it, the committee, had immediately de- had to immediately deal with the worsening uprisings, partic- particularly in the western rural areas of France. To help deal with the uprisings, the assembly created a separate levy for conscripts to handle those matters. By June of 1793, it seemed all of France was in revolt against the revolution. Partially to mollify the unpopularity, the National Assembly in the summer of 1793 voted to draft another new constitution. When it had a draft ready, it provided for a unicameral legislature elected annually. The new constitution was prefaced with a significantly modified Declaration of Rights. It guaranteed all citizens public assistance when in need, a a state education, and the right to insurrection against oppression. On August 10th of 1793, the document was promulgated. Theoretically, the National Assembly's work was finished at that time, and it could dissolve itself and make way for the new government created by the new constitution. Maximilian Robespierre, however, believed the new constitution could not take effect at the time of war, and so its operation was suspended. In the spring of 1971, Chairman Mao fell gravely ill, apparently from pneumonia. Publicly, however, he blamed Lin Biao, claiming that he tried to poison him. And here is where it gets interesting. On September 12, 1971, a strange plane crash in Mongolia took the life of Lin Biao, his wife, his son, and others. It is not clear if the plane was a commercial, civilian plane, or a military plane. Everything about the incident is shrouded in mystery. The story goes that for months leading up to the crash, Lin Biao was worried he was in danger and that he should escape China. Now remember, at that time, Lin Biao was the heir apparent ruler of China. Lin Biao worried about assassination and his physical appearance had noticeably declined in those months leading up to his death. After all, Lin Biao, no angel himself, knew Mao's history and what he was capable. But Lin Biao refused to leave until, at least, that forgettable day in September of 1971. With some of his immediate family in tow, he decided to leave. Under the cover of darkness, and he interrupted the refueling of the plane and left China on less than a full tank of fuel. Not surprisingly, the plane did not make it to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union recovered the bodies, and I believe to this day has not returned them to China. Of course, there is another slightly different version of the cause of the plane crash. That is, Mao had it shot down 
or sabotaged it in such a way it would crash out of China and away from any chance of an official investigation. There are stories that Chairman Mao was visibly shaken by the news of Lin Biao's death and became ill and depressed. We do know that immediately following Lin Biao's death, the CCP disappeared him, so to speak, and erased any evidence or tried to erase any evidence that he ever existed. A purge of his followers ensued for the next two years. Lin Biao's death was a turning point because his death exposed to everyone that he had failed China. He was a traitor, and he was the number two person in China, the next in line, the heir apparent to the leadership of China. Everyone had been taught that the CCP leadership was perfect. Lin Biao's death caused many to rethink that. Chairman Mao told the story that Lin Biao wanted and plotted to assassinate him, the chairman. Who knows? Certainly, Mao Zedong benefited from the death of Lin Biao. Whatever physical or emotional effect his death had on Chairman Mao, within two months of his death, Mao was planning his next move. After Mao recovered, he relaxed some of his controls. He reached out to reconcile differences with former enemies. Many thought that he did this as a grieving friend. But did he? Stay tuned. The parallel continues in the next episode. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. <laughs>